0: brought your Bibles today, or you brought your your cell phone with a Bible app on it, just let's turn to uh, Galatians chapter 2. Last Sunday, uh, we began a six-part series through Paul's letter to the Galatians. We're just seeking to summarize each chapter. As you know, Galatians, it's up there with Romans in terms of just uh, content and influence, and so what what I'm seeking to do is summarize the general message within each chapter, so we're not going to be able to cover a lot of what you might consider other important issues. Uh, And so, bear with me with that. We're just going to reflect on the big idea within each chapter. And there's more than one big idea, that's the problem. So, (laughs) as we saw last week, Paul is coming out, right in the beginning of this letter, he's coming out swinging, you know. Never starts his letters like this. And so there's something going on in the churches of Galatia that is causing this kind of response in Paul. And it's against the agitators, the people that the agitators or the false teachers that are coming in that Paul speaks of, they're not Judaizers, they're seeking to Judaize. They're false teachers, they're a sect of Jewish Christians actually, and they're coming from Jerusalem. And they're undermining the message and the social implications of the gospel of Jesus Christ. Not only the message, but the social implications of the gospel of Jesus Christ. They're coming in after Paul on his heels saying that Gentile Christians, right? And these are Christian Jews. Gentile Christians must be circumcised to be incorporated into the people of God. And so however they viewed baptism it was not viewed as the sacrament of initiation they said they needed something more than baptism they needed something more than Jesus they needed parts of the law to be kept in order to be a part of the people of God to be included into that great event in Jesus Christ you know we gotta give a lot of grace here because the New Testament had not yet been written Everything was by word of mouth going on. They were preaching out of the Old Testament, for sure, the gospel. But they were still figuring things out. And this gospel of grace was not given to the brothers in Jerusalem directly from the Lord. And I find that just amazing because Peter Cephas, that we heard about today, as we know, was one of the major 12 disciples. And he's still waffling on this issue of grace as it pertains to Jew and Gentile relationship. He he still doesn't get it. It just blows my mind to think that you could spend that much time with Jesus and still need the resurrected Jesus to open your eyes, right? And that's who opened Paul's eyes. His calling came directly from the risen Christ. And I believe in a literal bodily resurrection. Sometimes we need to say that. We can't assume it. We can talk resurrection language and not even believe in the bodily resurrection, right? So, last week, we looked at chapter 1. Paul invites the scattered churches of Galatia to join him in a gospel doxology. And the reason why I'm repeating this is because as we look at this and go through the book, this doxology is going to be the foundation throughout his argument. He starts out, grace and peace to you from God our Father in the Lord Jesus Christ. Get this, who gave himself... ...for our sins, that he might rescue us from this present evil age. According to the will of our God and Father, to whom be glory forever and ever. And then he says, amen, indicating doxology, worship, make it your own. Say the amen to this on a daily basis is what he's inferring. And if you do this, then I don't even need to write the rest of the letter. If you get this, then the letter's not necessary, but he realizes the letter's necessary. (laughs) Jesus gave himself for our sins. That's, That's love language of sacrifice. Freely offering himself as the once for all sacrifice for the sin of the whole world. He gave himself for our sins that he might rescue us. That salvation language, the language of salvation, which the law in and of itself Could not achieve. The law in and of itself could not achieve salvation. And that's the whole point that Paul's making. Christ is the telos, the end, the goal of the law. And he didn't come to abolish it, he came to fulfill it. And that's exactly what Christ has done. He's fulfilled it. Not abolished it, but he's fulfilled it. Therefore, there's no need to go back because it's already fulfilled. And he fulfilled it for all of us. He's representative Israel He's the corporate second Adam, Jesus Christ, who came to undo what the first Adam did, that we might be rescued from what? Saved from what? To go to heaven when we die? That's not what he's saying. We need to be saved, rescued from this present evil age, It's a two-age kingdom. We've got the present evil age and the age to come. And we're in the middle of the two, and we're in the intersection of the two. <laughs> this present evil age is being invaded by the age to come, the, age, the new age of the kingdom of God. And it's that already-not-yet tension that's pulling us and, and realizing that we're not done yet. <laughs> we're not there yet. We're awaiting our Savior, Jesus Christ. We're awaiting, waiting here for you. Yeah, there you go. We sang it this morning. We're waiting on the second advent of Jesus Christ. And so he's calling us then to join in this proclamation as an offering to God in worship. Concluding with the Amen. Affirming it as ours. Amen. And so in this passage beginning with verse 11 we see the tensions between the old order and the new order happening. The tensions between the old order and the new age of the kingdom. Working it out between two brothers Cephas and Paul, there's this tension. Theologically, socially, there's social implications that Paul's concerned about. Peter is stuck. He's stuck. He's acting inconsistently. And we can all relate to that. (laughs) I can relate to that. He's inconsistent in his beliefs and what he's standing for with the truth of the gospel, though. This is what Paul is indicting him with. You're being inconsistent with the truth of the gospel that Gentile Christians are full members of the one people of God and that the old food regulations, which depict the social barriers, a part of the wall that was erected between Jew and Gentile, had now been broken down. He's eating with Gentiles. He's having a good time. I don't know if he's having pork, but he's with people who do, right? And this is good. This is good to set across table fellowship. Jesus started this. Jesus started breaking the social barriers down, being a friend of sinners, hanging out with prostitutes, going home with tax collectors, and calling some to be his disciples. These are all total taboos in his world. And Jesus is just breaking it down. This is what's happening here with Peter. He's reminiscing how Jesus sat with Tax collectors and sinners, and he's doing the same thing. He's having table fellowship. But, (laughs) but, Paul is saying, when certain men from James pay a visit, James in Jerusalem, conservative Christian Jews, Messianic Jews, who seek to Judaize Gentiles, demanding circumcision, etc., Peter falls back when these guys show up. Peter falls back into the old order. He's going like, I'm afraid to to confront these people. Peter is afraid. Gosh, I mean, of all disciples, Peter's afraid, right? I just don't get that. It's really hard to get. And this is foundational for the rest of what we're going to talk about today. Will there be two separate churches divided among ethnic lines or one church united as one people? That's what's at stake here. Will there be Jewish Christians and Gentile Christians? This affects us. What's hanging in the balance sheet? Paul is our apostle. He's the reason why we're not under the food laws. It just dawned on me as I was studying this. I just think, thank you, Paul. You know? I mean, what, what would we do in Kansas City without pulled pork? You know? Come on. We couldn't have table fellowship. We'd have to eat that. Well, I like it, but it's... Uh, I was going to say Godforsaken jackfruit barbecue, but... Yeah, have you ever had jackfruit barbecue? Tastes pretty darn good. Father Godier, who's a vegetarian, I took him to Charbar. Yes, thank you. Yeah, I wanted to say food, F-U-D, because I've had it there, too, and it's fantastic. But this is, this is green jackfruit, man. It's been, like, smoked and then sauced up and everything, and it tastes almost like meat. Almost. <laughs> Yeah, and so thank you Paul, thank you Paul, we, we honor you today for that, that we can eat the holy pig. So what does it mean to be, what does it mean to be crucified with Christ? What does it mean? Probably out of chapter 2 that this is the most, the most familiar passage for us all. We just go right to that, out of context a lot of times. But within the context that I've been speaking of, I think that we'll be able to get a little bit of a different angle on this. Paul is referring to his old identity. I, the ego, the ego, has been crucified. His old identity, it's going through a death. It's going through the crucifixion of Jesus Christ himself. His former life of trusting, here here it is, faith. His former life of faith or trusting in the law has been terminated. It's been completely terminated by the one who fulfilled it. Jesus Christ himself. In order to enter a new realm of reality where he is no longer in charge. He's been crucified, referring to his old identity, I, my old identity, that which I drew strength from, that which I tried to please God with, that which held me up. In Philippians, he says, as to the law, I was blameless. I mean, you know, he could keep the law. He could keep the rules. But he needed a rescuer to deliver him from this present evil age. And he found that in Jesus Christ. And so now, in that same book, in Philippians, he says, we, the church, are the new circumcision. That's an identity that we don't put on our brochures or anything, you know. It's kind of, Come and worship with the new circumcision. We're the new circumcision who worship in the spirit, right? Who worship in the spirit and put no confidence in the flesh. We're the new circumcision. What is he talking about? He's talking about baptism. He's talking about water baptism. We come into union with Christ, being united in his death and his resurrection. I have been crucified by being baptized and united into Christ Jesus, the Messiah. My Messiah, our Messiah. We come in this crucifixion to participate in the resurrection of Jesus and therefore to participate in the life of the Holy Trinity, where our union with Christ, in a sense, mediates or brings us into fellowship with Father, with Father and the Spirit as well. We find ourselves, like Paul, embodying a message where Cultural and ethnic walls then, as a result of this, have been broken down. Where we give ourselves to others in love. And in that, we overcome fear. We overcome anxiety from trying to please God. Because Christ has done it for us. The life I now live in the body that is this present age. I live by faith in the Son of God. Or it can be translated, I live by faith in the faith of Christ' faithfulness. In the faithfulness of Christ. In the faith of Christ in His faithfulness. I live by faith in the faithfulness of Christ. What does that mean? The faithfulness of Christ. He goes on to say, I live by faith in the Son of God, and this is the faithfulness of Christ, who loved me, and gave himself for me. He was a faithful sacrifice. He was faithful in everything. And in a sense, it's his faithfulness that saves us. It's not my faithfulness that saves me. I'm in trouble if it is, if that's the requirement. My faithfulness. But I trust, I put my faith, I am saved by faith, but not my faith alone. I am saved by my faith placed in the faithfulness of Christ. That's the way I read that and understand that. And it brings me much comfort. We place our faith in Christ's faithfulness, exhibited in His self-giving love on the cross. Each moment, each day, we offer ourselves in thanksgiving for this great faithfulness you might even want to sing it. Great is thy faithfulness. You know, there it is. That song captures it. Great is your faithfulness, Lord, for me. Okay. There's more that we could say about this. There's mystical realities to being crucified with Christ. There's all kinds of ways to apply this and look at this. But I'm going to move because we just don't have the time. Number two. Here's another question. How is the truth of the gospel that Paul spoke about in verse 14. How is the truth of the gospel embodied then in social practices? When I saw that they were not acting in line with the truth of the gospel, I said to Cephas in front of them all, You are a Jew, yet you live like a Gentile and not like a Jew. How is it then that you force Gentiles to follow Jewish customs? Okay. Forcing others to follow Jewish customs, Paul is saying is not acting in line with the truth of the gospel. And what I want to point out here is that the truth of the gospel has social implications. It's not just about what I believe in my head or in my heart, for that matter. Paul is saying that the outworking of what you're believing, you're inconsistent with, really, the truth of the gospel. You've not made up your mind what the gospel of grace is yet, Peter. Okay? How is the truth of the gospel in embodied then in social practices that would be a question we're not going to answer all that today but i want you to think about it in paul's encounter with peter paul insists that the truth of the gospel 214 is a social reality he's saying that the gospel must be embodied in the practices of a community that shares a common life and that's what was going on here table fellowship Partying with the Gentiles, Everything was good until Peter drew back and said, "Oh, my friends are here from Jerusalem. I feel ashamed. They're not going to like me. you know He's pulling back now, and he's going like, oh, he's, these are not my friends." You know? Peter was attempting to rebuild walls that had been broken down in the death of Jesus. One can betray the truth of the gospel not only by false teaching, but also by false practices. Particularly practices that fracture the unity of the church. And that's what Paul's getting at here. Paul's issue with Peter is not a side issue, but an issue front and center within the gospel itself. Hmm. And I think about the state of the church today. The church that we are a part of. Globally, around the world, not just Anglican now, okay, I'm talking about all of the people of God, the one people of God, not the denominations, but you think about this the racial segregation that occurs, the classism, and other means of exclusion, other means of excluding others. Oh, it's so unspoken. I tell you what, we know what it feels like not to be welcomed, we know what it feels like to be shamed. We know what it feels like to be in a, in a group and walk in and not be acknowledged. You know, no eye contact. Uh, and you say to yourself, I'm out of here. It's hard. It's painful. It's just painful not to be received. He who receives you, Jesus told his disciples, receives me. There's something bigger going on here than us just receiving people. And serving people and loving people and including people, there's something much bigger going on here. As much as you've done it to the least of my brethren, you've done it unto me. Because Jesus is the second human being. The second Adam means he's the second human being. He represents all humanity now. And so, (laughs) when one member hurts, the whole body should hurt. And then, how do you become a member? That's the issue here. Can you even get into the club? Do you have the right zip code to go to that church? Or do you have the right zip code to go to this church? Do you drive the right car? Are you going to be embarrassed when you pull into that parking lot and you see all those Mercedes there and all that? Yeah. This is classism. I despise it. I despise it because I was raised in the Appalachian Mountains and I know what it feels like. To move to San Francisco and have a southern accent and be ridiculed just for the way I speak, you know? And, I, and it, if you think I have a little southern thing going on now, it was very twangy. It, I had the twang thing. Have you ever heard of the twang thing? That's right. Sound like Buddy Miller when he was singing, right? If you don't know who I'm talking about, you should. Okay. Okay. <laughs> But all of these implications of segregation and classism and other means of exclusion, that's what we deal with today. We see denominations who denounce other denominations and black churches over here and white churches over here. Wow. We've got a lot of work to do. That's all I can say. I I don't have all the answers, but we've got a lot of work to do. And it begins here, right? It begins right in here in my ability to be... Gosh, to come to a place where Paul sees this and I'm that passionate about it, uh, it's, it's a conversion. It really is a conversion. I went to Fuller Seminary where in the, uh, the school of church growth, they teach you, where they used to teach. <laughs> that was back in the day. Okay, this was in the uh, late 80s and early 90s. But uh, they taught the homogeneous principle that churches grow best in a homogeneous cluster of people where everybody's the same. They're in the same socioeconomic, you know? And, hey, what if, have what if the suburbs been developed around? Uh, you know, this is, this is it. I've, I've pastored churches in the suburbs. I know what it's like in one of the richest areas of the nation, you know, in Alamo, California. And uh, I, I was the most unhappy there I've ever been. And it's not because any of that is bad or evil. It's not. It's, it's what it can do to people... When Jesus said, it's, it's very hard for a rich person to enter the kingdom of God. I, that's just what Jesus says. And I get it. I get it. Uh, because when we're not in need and when, we, when we're comfortable and we're self-sufficient and we have everything, and most Americans do, right? Most of us do. There's not that sense of desperation that we need to be rescued. To be rescued from what? My life is comfortable. No, it's the present evil age. What? Enjoy. Enjoy it all. And we need to enjoy it all, but it needs to be sanctified. We're called to be priests over creation. And we're called to bless creation. And call it back under the dominion of Jesus and his priesthood. All of you are royal priests. You were called to bless. That was the original intent of Adam. And Adam gave that up. Many of us in the United States owe a lot to the Anglican Church of Rwanda who walked through this mass genocide in the '90s, um, but there is a there is a situation where in 1994 members of the Hutu tribe carried out mass murders of the Tutsi tribe, and at the town of Ruhanga a group of 13,000 and a half it's 13,500 Christians is the statistic they gathered for refuge in this town. 13,500 Christians, and they were of various denominations: Roman Catholics, Anglicans. Baptists, Pentecostals, and others. And according to an eyewitness, when the militia came, um, they ordered the, Hutu, the Hutus and the Tutsis to separate themselves by tribe. They were all together. They refused. They refused and declared that they were all one in Christ. And for that, they were slain. 13,500 completely blown over, thrown in mass graves for standing, for standing together, overcoming the sin of tribalism that Africa is still battling with. I just share that, not to say that that's where the problems are in Africa. They're here. But that is such a beautiful example of reconciliation, you know, unto death, unto death. And yeah, the... Anglican group that I was affiliated with uh, as I was getting my diaconal ordination, they were covered by Rwandan Anglican bishops. So the people refused and declared that they were all one in Christ and for that they were killed, gunned down in mass and dumped into mass graves. It is a disturbing story. It's a very disturbing story. But it's a compelling witness to the power of the gospel to overcome ethnic and denominational, social walls of division. And Paul would say, I believe this is an example of what it means to be faithful, to be a faithful witness of the gospel. To be a faithful witness of the gospel uh, calls us to more than affirming our Nicene Creed. To be a faithful witness of the gospel calls us to more than just agreeing with the Apostles' Creed or even saying that the Scripture is the inspired Word of God. You know, we all, these are all good things. But there's more. There's social implications. And we all know this. It's going to be harder to work these things out. It's going to be more challenging. Having been crucified with Christ, here it comes back to that, they preferred to die Having been crucified with Christ, they preferred to die rather than to deny the grace of God that had made them one in Christ. And so we asked this morning, what does it mean to be a faithful witness of the gospel? What does that look like for us in urban Kansas City? Yeah. We have faithful witnesses that we've sent out this week to Nigeria and to... And other parts of of, of the world. But what does it look like for us here? Because we're called on mission here, right? We're called to be missionaries here. Unless we're called to be missionaries somewhere else. We're all called to be missionaries. (laughs) Uh. We're all called to be on mission. What does that mean to be on? You know, those of you who have, you have to have your cell phones ready because you're on call. Some of you here this morning could be on call. And there's that sense of, I can rest, but I can't rest. You know what I mean? Uh, I, I'm always having to be on. I have to be ready because, you know, if, if not, then I could really do some damage. Do some damage if I'm not ready. Uh, as a doctor, as a surgeon, as whatever, whatever that is. And so the same with us. We're always on call. And so that's why you know, the language of Scripture says, be on the alert. Because Satan seeks to devour you in this present evil age, be on the alert. That's why we need to be on the alert because we're in this present evil age awaiting our Savior, the glorious salvation of Jesus Christ. And so, to be on watch. Jesus said, watch. It's that watch, that anticipation. Uh, And then out of that, what will that produce? Uh, Well, We don't know until we watch and we listen and obey. That's all it is. It's just the simple day by day, yes, Lord, I'll do that, impulse of living in love because that's how we fulfill now. The law, right, is through love. A new commandment I give to you that you love one another. That's the fulfillment. That is the summation of the law and the prophets. Jesus did it ultimately for us on the cross, and he says, I've given you an example. Not just washing your feet, but... You know, he stretched out his arms on the cross and he gave himself and rescued us from this present evil age. And so we believe the prayer of Jesus will be answered. Father, I pray that they may be one. It's got to be one of the impulses of our existence here in Kansas City is that we carry that prayer of Jesus with us and pray that prayer. Father, make us one. I don't know what that looks like. I'm a little scared about it, but it's, uh, it's just like I, I know it's true and I know it's real. I make us one. And that means there's going to be a unity in diversity. There can be no unity without diversity. There's no such thing as unity if there's not more than one because they have to be unified. And so you get diversity in the mix. And, and of course now, I'm not talking, you know, that word has been hijacked politically and in the workplace and all that. I'm not talking about that kind of, you know, that's not where I'm coming from. You know, that's another language. It's good that I need to clarify that. But there is a unity in diversity, a diversity of gifts, a diversity of culture, a diversity of opinions and backgrounds and, uh, you know, social standing and, and vocations and physical abilities you know, intellectual abilities. I mean, there's just a diversity of people, and and there's just so much going on in a group like this where it takes the Holy Spirit to make us one. None of us would be here without Jesus. When you come to think about it, you came this morning because Jesus has united you with his body, and we're united. Otherwise, we wouldn't hang out with each other because we would seek somewhere else that was more homogeneous, this is a very unhomogeneous church, and we're see- you know, we just want to make sure that it continues to grow in, in that so that everyone feels included here and we can have table fellowship like Jesus did. And when I say table fellowship, I don't mean the Eucharist is open to those who don't know Christ and have not been baptized by Christ. That's not table fellowship. That's just hanging out, offering friendship, and being open and loving to those who are around us. Yeah, that's table fellowship. Lord Jesus, we ask that we would live into to the glorious implications of your gospel. Thank you for your promise that you are with us even till the end of this age. In the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit.